Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Good evening. Welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper, New York. Hey, Anderson. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is our 13th consecutive CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. This program tonight is being seen around the world on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and also streamed on CNN.com. In the four months since this virus started to kill in this country, more than 100,000 people have died here. When we did our first town hall, 12 people had died. Not 12,000 or even 1,200, 12. A dozen weeks later, the death toll has surpassed 100,000. It's hard to even imagine that number, let alone make sense of it. And for all the comparisons made, so many 9-11s, this many Hurricane Katrinas, this war, that war, there is simply sadly this. For every story of every life that deserves to be told, there are a thousand more. It would take weeks to tell them all and days just to read their names. And that is just one awful measure of this tragedy, which is counted too in all the mothers and fathers, grandparents and children, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors who died without being held by those who loved them most. It's counted in every parent taken off a ventilator and every child watching on FaceTime instead of being there. Every stranger holding that parent's hand and all the thanks they deserve and should get. This tragedy is measured in the medical students who went straight from school to the busiest ICUs on earth and in the weeks that went by without testing that made them so busy by letting the outbreak spread. It's built on every promise made and broken by elected officials, every falsehood uttered and every truth told. And the sadness surrounding those 100,000 deaths is joined by the pain of more than 40 million people now out of work in this country about one in four Americans unable to provide for their families or even themselves. So much has brought us to this point and so much lies ahead, not all of it known. And that's our focus tonight, what we know and what we still don't know about this virus that has now taken more than 100,000 lives. And helping us tonight, experts on the medicine and the science. We wanna hear from you, so tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall or leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page A lot of you have already sent in video questions as well. We're gonna get to as many of those as we can tonight. We also have reports from across the country and around the world. We also have some breaking news just in from the CDC, which has just published a new forecast. It's based on more than a dozen individual models from outside institutions and researchers, and the projection raises yet another chill, about 123,000 lives lost by June 20th. That's the projection. In other words, in the next three weeks or so, another 22,000 Americans may die, according to the CDC projection. That is a difficult medicine to take so soon after such a bitter milestone. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. have died from the coronavirus, and more than 1.7 million people have tested positive. Despite these grim numbers, the majority of states are either reporting a drop in their numbers or holding steady. There are 16 states showing an uptick, primarily in the southeast. The best news of public health is that we are seeing in certain areas a significant plateauing and diminution. That's sort of sobered by the fact that in other areas, unfortunately, we are seeing some uptick. So in the areas that are going down, it means when you do the mitigation, it works. Most of America is now partially reopened. Even New York State, which is the epicenter of the outbreak, has begun reopening, though New York City remains largely closed. New York is back. We're reopening uh, all across the state, and uh, we're going to get back, and we're we're going to be better than ever. There we go. The entertainment industry is slowly coming back. Some Las Vegas hotels and casinos plan to reopen next week. 
and theme parks in Florida, including Disney World, are also making plans to reopen over the next few months. Health officials are urging everyone to keep wearing masks in public. They want to make it be a symbol for people to see that that's the kind of thing you should be doing. This week, the CDC issued guidelines on how to return to work safely, which include air filtration systems and socially distant office layouts. But they also warned that antibody tests should not be used to determine when people can go back to work because up to 50% of the tests could be inaccurate. And though Dr. Anthony Fauci is still optimistic about a vaccine this year, other experts say we're still in the early days of this pandemic. For uh, all the suffering, pain, death, and so forth uh, we've had so far, only about 5% of the U.S. citizens have been infected, and this virus is not going to rest at all until it gets to 60 or 70%. It's a lot to get your arms around this week in so many ways, with new cases fluctuating state by state, reopening announcements coming, vaccine developments, new guidance from the CDC. There's a lot to talk about in this hour. First, let's get uh, back up to speed on the medical front with Sanjay. Sanjay? Yeah, Anderson, it feels like the nation is collectively holding its breath right now waiting, anticipating to see what's going to happen next. Uh, we know for sure the virus is still out there. That hasn't changed. And we know that public health officials are keeping a close eye on several states, five in particular that all reopened early, and four of which now have started to see a surge of people newly infected. At the same time, we know, as you mentioned, Anderson, there are states that are holding steady, even trending downward. And it seems in many of those places, the policy is to reopen, but the people are still doing all they can to keep their distance, wear a mask, reduce everyone's exposure. And we know that makes a difference, a big one. We should be clear on this, and this should inspire people. There are places around the world that have started to reopen safely, and they did it with no other tools than the ones we have. No magic medicine, no vaccine, just aggressive action and done early. There are lessons that we have to learn here, and if we apply those lessons now, yes, more testing, more tracing, more mask wearing, but also more compassion and empathy because we are still very much all in this together. If we get that part of it right, then Anderson, I think we may be able to finally catch our breath. Um, all that said, there's also this notion of just wanting to be done with the virus already and the upheaval it's causing in so many lives. Even though as we've been discussing, the virus is certainly not done with us. The tension between those two thoughts, we are seeing that playing out across the country and with a number of new developments tonight. So for a closer look, we're joined now by CNN's Jason Carroll. So Jason, taking a look at the states trending up in the southeast in California, I understand that Governor Kemp just said that Georgia is trending favorably. Uh, is that accurate? Well, look, I think a lot of the health, health experts out there, Anderson, would say favorably is a stretch. The numbers in Georgia are basically flat. You know, they were up, they were down. But at this point, they're basically flat. As you know, in the state of Georgia, the governor basically said, look, you know, you can have no more than 10 people who can gather. Now, he says, as of June 1st, that number is going to go up to 25 people. And some of his critics are saying, look, why are you doing that? Your numbers aren't great. Uh, he says if there's any sort of uptick in numbers in that state, it's because of a backlog of testing. But when you look at the state of California, the numbers there, Anderson, very clear. And then late tonight comes word that the largest single-day increase of coronavirus cases in that state since the pandemic. They are now reporting 2,617 new cases. This, as the state, is just starting with its reopening efforts. Anderson. Yeah, and Jason, are you learning about anything that's driving what's happening in California there? You know, it, look, interesting question. Uh, I think a lot of folks are going to be looking and saying, did they do too much too soon? I think these are some of the questions that folks are going to be asking. Uh, but at this point, it's anyone's guess. You know, I mean, we've seen upticks in, in California and some of these other southern states where they uh, were a little bit more aggressive in terms of reopening as opposed to places like here in New York, where they were sort of slow to reopen. York's governor, in fact, has made it very clear, even though a lot of people have been pressuring him to reopen here, he says, I want to do it in the smartest way possible. Just Carol, Jason, thanks. Brazil right now appears to be on a familiar and troubling path. Total confirmed cases, uh, the U.S. is in green, Brazil's in pink, several weeks behind us, but apparently climbing the same kind of exponential curve seen here in Spain, Italy, the U.K., and elsewhere. In fact, according to data from Johns Hopkins University, Brazil, with upwards of 438,000 confirmed cases, is now second only to the U.S., with authorities there reporting a record number of new cases today. Our Nick Payton Walsh is in Rio de Janeiro for us. Uh, Nick, what is the latest? 
We've got 26,417 cases confirmed in just one day, Anderson. That is a record for Brazil. A startling number, frankly, if you just bear in mind that that is not the entire picture here. Many doctors we've spoken to essentially say that you need three coronavirus symptoms to qualify for a test in Brazil. So when you say the number 438,000 positive cases in a population of 210 million, that possibly suggests there may be a lot happening here in Brazil that isn't part uh, of that former number. And, and Nick, you, you also traveled to the hardest hit city there as well. What, what did you find? What has it been like there now? Yeah, Sao Paulo, the biggest, the wealthiest city too. We're seeing a lot of that, obviously, of course. Uh, San Jay, wealth, not necessarily protecting anybody from the spread of this disease in the most densely populated cities. Sao Paulo, one of the hospitals we went to, one of the best, frankly, were already full. And this was a week ago now, essentially, I think we're about a week to a fortnight away from the peak of the virus hitting Sao Paulo. They are reporting about approximately 15% of the confirmed cases so far. It's an enormous city in itself, uh, but it does appear at this point to be trying to ease some of the lockdown restrictions. And that is contradictory because the, uh, the governor of that particular area has been a, a bit of a, a, a different voice in Brazil compared to the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who's played down uh, the severity of the virus. The governor of Sao Paulo has put in a lockdown, made face masks mandatory like they are here in Rio de Janeiro as well. But all the same still appears to be realizing that the months of lockdown now possibly need to be relaxed somehow because the economy is suffering so much. It is just quite troubling to see those ideas and essentially non-essential shops can open if they present a plan on Monday that the government approves. Those ideas for easing of the lockdown happen as the peak is about to hit. Mm. And have you heard specifics about what that reopening might look like then? Because everyone's trying to figure that out, obviously, around the world. What about there in Sao, Sao Paulo? It would essentially mean that certain shops, non-essential you might call them, exceptions being made for food courts and gyms, they will not be allowed to open. They will essentially have to present a plan on June the 1st Monday in which they say this is what we intend to do and then the government will stamp, stamp that and approve it. Essentially an impossible bureaucratic task mm. in a city of that particular size. It was an effective lockdown when we saw it about four days ago. A lot was closed, takeout essentially only available in restaurants, mostly pharmacies and supermarkets open uh, and deserted streets to some degree and these face masks pretty much mandatorily observed in Sao Paulo but that hadn't really slowed the numbers down that was what was so troubling. Mm. Nick Ben Walsh thanks for being there in Rio. Perspective now from award-winning science writer uh, David Kwaman author of a book that may have come out some years ago but certainly saw uh, this day coming the title is Spillover it's a remarkable book I've read it Spillover Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. David, in your book, uh, eight years ago, you wrote that the next pandemic that will kill millions will be, quote, strange, unfamiliar, but it won't come from outer space. Mm. Odds are that the killer pathogen, most likely a virus, will spill over into humans from a non-human animal. Those words were, I mean, right on the money. And the idea that this was predictable and People like you and your book, which I've read, which is fantastic. Bill Gates had been talking about. There's a lot of people who have been talking about this and the evidence was all out there. And yet we still are woefully unprepared. Right, right. The science was there. The scientists knew about this. The only reason I predicted it in spillover in 2012 was because I was listening to a select group of shrewd uh, infectious disease scientists and they were saying this. It's coming. It'll be a virus out of an animal possibly a bat, uh, possibly a coronavirus or an influenza because they evolve quickly, possibly in a place like a, a wet market or near, anyway, someplace where humans are coming in contact with wild animals and, and, um, and then it'll transmit and spread around the world if we're unlucky. So that was all there. And, and the most surprising thing, the least predictable thing was how unprepared we have been to deal with it. I mean, just going a, a step further, even my understanding, there was a close variant of this virus that was actually found in a cave several years ago. Not exactly the same virus. It was found by these virus hunters. Somehow it spilled over, the term of your, the name of your book, into humans. But there's been concern the virus could make that jump and cause disease. And when I hear that, I, I, I wonder, could, could have anything been done even at that time to, to try and prevent this? It could certainly have been done. 
Um, the woman who led that team, Dr. Zheng Li Shi at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, she and her group were writing papers saying, look, we're finding these coronaviruses mm. in bats. They're pretty similar to the original SARS virus. They are probably very dangerous. These require high preparedness. There's a necessity for high preparedness. She was publishing that in 2017, that kind of warning. And it wasn't just one virus, it was several, but they were, they turn out to be, um, one of them at least, very similar to this virus, not identical, but very similar to this virus. And, and the warnings went, um, they may have been heard, but they were not acted upon, at least at, at the level of um, and national preparedness that we needed in this country and several other countries. In terms of this pandemic and, and why things have gone so wrong here in the U.S., one former CDC official you spoke to said it was a, a lack of imagination. What, what do you think he meant by that? And, and, and why has that been such a fatal flaw? That's right. Dr. Ali Khan, now dean of the uh, School of Public Health at University of Nebraska, formerly at the CDC, which is where I originally met him back in 2006. So I went back to him recently, um, virtually, and talked with him. And he said, yeah, it's a failure of imagination. The scientific warnings were there. It was an inability to say, okay, we must invest money and political will and skill in being prepared for this thing in, in um, medical capacity, hospital capacity, um, uh, health care workers capacity, responders capacity, technology, diagnostic kits that would be ready to do testing in real time at airport checkpoints, platform vaccines that could have quickly have been adapted from a generalized corona vaccine into a specific vaccine for this coronavirus. All of that, Ali Khan was saying, we just... We just didn't get it. We didn't take the warnings of SARS in 2003 and the warnings of MERS in 2012, two other coronaviruses. And, and Bill Gates, uh, on that point, Bill Gates had, in 2015, had talked about, um, you know, that this would be, it would cost, you know, tens of billions of dollars, which may sound like a lot, but when you compare it to what this coronavirus, you know, the price tag it has already cost, not just, I mean, in human life, but, but in dollars, it's incalculable. That's right. That's right. And that's what Dennis Carroll, formerly of USAID, told me. He ran the PREDICT program for 10 years, which was sending people out to sample viruses in the wild and find out what's there. And what he told me was that he thought it was um, a risk averseness, um, that scientists could provide the warnings, public health officials could, could echo the warnings to political leaders, but political leaders tend to be risk averse. And as Bill Gates said, uh, it would cost billions and billions of dollars, I don't know, 20x billions of dollars to be prepared against a pandemic like this. Um, and a politician of a certain sort doesn't want to spend that money if the event is not going to happen during his term of office. And I'm afraid that's what that's what occurred. And but of course, the COVID-19 makes, you know, tens 20x billions of dollars look like chicken feed. I mean, that, that's obviously very sad to hear that the, they, they just wouldn't spend the money because of their term in office. But, you know, you bring up SARS, and in one of the articles that you, you wrote, you described it, uh, someone described it, I think it was Ali Khan described it as the, the bullet that went whistling past humanity's year. I mean, that really gets your attention for sure. That was also a coronavirus, like you mentioned, ended up infecting 8,000 people around the world, 800 died. But what, what, what did, did something go right there that didn't go right here, or did we get lucky? Um, we got lucky because that virus was not as transmissible as this one. It didn't have, as far as we know, silent spread. Um, you know, asymptomatic people shedding virus while they walked around feeling healthy. And we did some things right. Public health community, scientific community did some things right. They identified that virus and characterized it very quickly got the genome figured out after some very unfortunate events of super spreading uh, that infected a lot of healthcare workers. They figured it out and um, the virus spread from southern China to a hotel in Hong Kong and then from the Hong Kong airport to Toronto, Beijing, Singapore, um, Hanoi. And uh, those were countries that had strong healthcare systems but also strong governments. Do you think it's going to happen? I mean, obviously, we're still in early days in this. We don't know fully what lies ahead, but, but we know more people are going to die and this is going to be around a, a while. Um, this could also all just happen again. I mean, what do you hope we learn from this? 
Well, I hope we learn um, a couple of things. First, to spend the money and spend the political will and capital to be prepared to prevent the next spillover, the next outbreak from becoming an epidemic or a pandemic. We can do that with sophisticated, internationally coordinated systems of surveillance. Beyond that, even more important than preventing the next uh, uh, outbreak from becoming a pandemic, I think, is learning about the deep causes, taking the lesson about the deep causes of this. 7.8 billion humans on the planet. We're very smart. We're very hungry. We want resources. We want meat. We want timber. We want minerals. Um, and we're disrupting the wild ecosystems of the earth. And as we do that, we're coming in contact with all these wild animals that carry all of these viruses. Mm. And as long as we right. keep doing that, um, we're going to be facing these um, these spillovers and these outbreaks in the future. Yeah. Well, David, I, I appreciate you being with us, and uh, I loved your book, Spillover. I just think it's so, such an important read uh, to, to really understand not just this virus, but, but so many others. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Anderson. Thanks, Sanjay. Very you good to be Thank with you. you. Well, we have a lot more ahead tonight, starting next with a top expert from the World Health Organization. We'll talk about the latest and sometimes changing guidance health officials are giving about social distancing. Also, we'll have your questions for Dr. Lena Wen. She'll be joining us and later a conversation with Oscar-nominated actress Taraji P. Henson and a noted psychologist, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Dr. Alfie, we'll be talking to her about the African-American community, which has already borne the brunt of this outbreak. How are they going to cope and what the future may hold? That and more as the CNN Global Town Hall continues. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. We continue tonight's scene in Global Town Hall, coronavirus facts and fears with answers to your questions about the pandemic that crossed the 100,000 mark just yesterday and has now taken more than 101,000 lives tonight in this country. In a moment, Dr. Lena Wen joins us answering your questions. But first, one of the leading authorities on the global stage, World Health Organization COVID-19 technical lead, Maria Van Kerkhove. Maria, obviously the United States has hit this uh, horrific milestone, 100,000 deaths in, uh, in just the last several months. Um, globally, what's your assessment of, of the virus right now? So thanks again for having me on the, on the show. Um, you know, we've hit a, another horrible mi- milestone of, of more than 5 million cases and it's over 300,000 deaths. And, you know, it's it, in many parts of the world, you know, we are seeing positive signs, but there are some worrying areas that we're, we're concerned about. You know, there are many countries in the Americas right now that are seeing a very large increase in cases. There's a few countries in in Europe, Russia in particular, that's seeing a large increase in cases. And we're seeing some worrying countries in in South Asia. Um, And so these are areas that we are concerned about because, as we know, as as you know, when this virus has an opportunity to really take hold, it can grow very, very quickly. Um, The other area we're, we're quite concerned about is Africa. Um, and it's not homogenous across, you know, the whole continent, of course, but there's almost like a long fuse that we're seeing, you know, where large number of countries are seeing cases, not huge numbers of cases, um, but any one of these can take, could really take hold and take off very, very quickly. And we have not seen how this virus uh, affects vulnerable populations, and, and that's a big worry of ours. One of the things that came up this week has to do with individuals going down to the individual level. A group of experts saying that six feet of physical distance uh, may not be enough uh, to prevent transmission. Now, uh, they're basically making the suggestion that this can be airborne. It can start to travel further, especially indoors. But, you know, people have really gotten the six feet number in their head. I know it's arbitrary to some extent, but this suggests that it could be, you know, significantly further. Yeah, so there's a number of things that we look at when we think about transmission. And, and in fact, this is one of the biggest questions that I have in my mind about how, how much do we really know about transmission? And, and I think we know quite a lot um, from the literature that's available. If you take it as a whole and if you look at the studies that have been done indoors and outdoors, um, our recommendation is one meter or more, at least one meter, which is about three and a half feet um, or more. And the longer the distance, the better, obviously. Um, and in many situations, you can't have, have that long. I think there's different ways in which the virus can transmit. It's a, it's a respiratory virus, so you've got different droplets that come out of your mouth. Some of those droplets are bigger. They're all small, but some of them are bigger and some of them are smaller. Uh, the bigger droplets can, can fall uh, quickly, and the, the ones that are smaller can, can remain suspended uh, a little bit longer. 
Um, but we're not seeing that they travel far distances mm. when people are talking with one another. Um, that you can cough or you can sneeze or you can sing where you're actually projecting out these and they can go a little bit further. Um, and ventilation in rooms helps. Um, and if you're outdoor, obviously the ventilation is much different than if you're indoors. So World Health Organization says one meter though, three feet? We say at least one meter. Okay. So at least one meter means, you know, just that. And so if, mm -hmm. if you could do more, you should do more. Um, remember, we are a global agency, and so we have to make this recommendation that fits every type of setting. So many countries do a little bit more, and that's great uh, because they are able to do so. But yeah, so what we look at is we look at the, the literature on um, the way particles release in people's mouths if they sneeze. And there's very interesting ways in which you can do that where you can use ultraviolet lights and different, right. different types of lights to see how far it goes. Dr. Fauci yesterday said that, that he thinks there's a good chance that a vaccine would be deployable by the end of the year, uh, assuming if everything goes right uh, with the search for the vaccine. I mean, is that a realistic timeline in, in your mind? Because, I mean, in coming, getting vaccines, I'm, I mean, I've talked to a number of experts who say, you know, it rarely does everything go right. Does everything mm -hmm. fall into place? So that's actually the, the integral part of that statement is like, if everything goes right. So I hope so. I mean, the answer is I hope so. Uh, and there are scientists that are working to accelerate the development of these vaccines. One thing that's really important for all of your viewers to understand is that even if we are work, even though we are working towards accelerating vaccines, that will not compromise on efficacy and safety importantly safety we're hearing a lot of people come back and say well if you rush it then it means you're not going to put out a safe vaccine and that is not the case um, so there's more than 100 candidates that are in development and the way that i like to think about it is i like to think of it in in stages almost you know in a few months we're going to start to get some results from these preclinical trials and the clinical trials that are underway that will help us narrow down which ones are showing some promise and then we'll have more data in a few months after that and more data but there are no shortcuts in the development of a vaccine. Safety is not compromised. I, I would like to ask one more question about the whole idea of this distance thing again, because it's really, it's fascinating, the idea of what constitutes a close contact. So if Anderson mm -hmm. and I were working in the same building, we walked by each other in the hallway, but within, you know, closer than six feet, but just walked by each other, that presumably would not be considered a close contact. It has to be at least 15 minutes is my understanding. But can you define that in a practical way? What, like when a contact tracer is trying to figure out who to trace, what are they looking for? Yes, so that's a, that's a very good question. So it's not only the distance that somebody is from, from another individual, it's the amount of time and it's the nature of that contact. If you're just walking past someone, if you're not talking face to face, if you're not uh, embracing or touching, if you're not caring for an individual, uh, you know, who, a potential patient, those are very different types of contacts. We think of a contact as someone who is in within, within a certain amount of distance to another individual. Um, it depends on the nature of the type of contact, like I mentioned. If it's a healthcare worker, then you need a much shorter duration in terms of how close you are with someone because you are potentially in contact with someone who is infected. We use a guideline of around 15 minutes, um, but that is quite long. Um, I think that many governments will look at how long uh, uh, um, an interaction needs to be. It could be a lot shorter, mm -hmm. depending on the type of nature that somebody has with someone. Raven Kirkov, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right, let's take some of your questions. Joining Sanjay and me, Dr. Alina Wen, emergency room physician, and former health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And a reminder, at the bottom of your screen, you're going to see our social media scroll showing what people are asking. We're also giving answers there. You can tweet us your questions with hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Dr. Wen, welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, what do you make of what Maria was nice just saying about, about distancing that the WHO standard is one meter, which is around three feet, and not the six feet that we've been following in this country. Yeah, I mean, we've always been saying that six feet is a rule of thumb. So it's not as if if you are five feet from someone, you're going to get coronavirus, and if you're seven feet, you're safe. So I think it's important for us to use common sense. Think about these indoor crowded areas where you cannot maintain that physical distance. That's the highest risk, especially if you're going to be singing, talking loudly. And I agree with what the point that Sandra just brought up, too, about the time of exposure as well, that if you're just passing someone by when you're jogging or you're in 
in the elevator with somebody for 30 seconds, that time of exposure is pretty low. Your risk, therefore, is low. Not all interactions have the same risks. So think about not only the distance, but also the time, too. Sanjay, this is a question from Trina in North Carolina. It reads, can you get COVID from trying on clothes at a department store? I live in a small rural town. A lot of people do not wear a mask when they're out. Yeah, um, well, so the answer is it's possible, but but unlikely. I mean, we know that this virus can stay on surfaces for some period of time. There was an article that came out in the New England Journal specifically about this uh, on, on countertops, on steel, on copper, things like that. It actually didn't look at fabric specifically, but the more permeable a fabric, the less likely the virus is to stick. The biggest risk, uh, as I think people realize by now, is coming in contact with somebody directly who might have the virus yeah. or touching like a countertop or some sort of shared hand rail or something. Dr. Wen James in Mobile, Alabama sent in this video. Let's watch. My question is, compared to the average death rate per day in America over the last five years from all sources, accidents, heart attack, cancer, and the flu, etc., what is the current death rate per day from all sources, including COVID-19? Dr. Wen? So prior to coronavirus, the average number of deaths per day in the U.S. was between 7,000 and 8,000. And you compare that to yesterday, within a 24-hour period, we had about 1,000 deaths due to COVID-19. So there's another concept here that's illustrated in this graph that's about excess deaths. And that's comparing the number of deaths that we normally would have compared to what it is that we have now. And that's attributable to not only COVID-19 directly, but also causes associated with it as well. And I think that just paints the picture of the awful toll that COVID-19 is having in our country. Sanjay, this is a question a dot in Alabama sent in. It reads, I hear about the addition of plexiglass barriers, such as in front of the cashier, in between tables in a restaurant. How well do these work? Do they offer much protection? Yeah, I, I think that they can offer uh, you know, a fair amount of protection, just basically creating some, a physical barrier between uh, somebody who may have the virus, maybe not even know it, and somebody who could potentially contract the virus. Uh, so it's not foolproof by any means, and I think that that's something that we have to keep emphasizing. These are all parts of things in, in the toolbox to try and reduce transmission. I think we're gonna see a lot more of these plexiglass barriers in all sorts of different places. But again, it, it's not that you no longer have to physically distance then or wear a mask then. It's not in lieu of, these are in addition to measures. And, and I know we, you went to a restaurant to kind of uh, show some of the, the better ways to, you know, do the best you can dining out safely. So let's take a look. First thing you want to do is just sort of take a look around. Uh, does the bar area look too crowded? Is it too crowded at the entrance area? How about the physical distance of the tables? If any of those are problematic, you should probably walk out. Second, I'm wearing a mask. I'm obviously not going to wear the mask when I eat but you're gonna have a hard time maintaining physical distance. So wear the mask, you gotta get up, go to the bathroom, anything, you have the mask. I also am one of those people who now carries hand sanitizer with me everywhere I go. You should probably as well. Also, if your restaurant has an online menu, check it out ahead of time. That's gonna cut down on the number of surfaces you have to touch. One thing about this restaurant is that they disinfect in between each customer. Someone coming around, wiping down the table, wiping down the chairs. If they're not doing that, you may want to bring your own wipes, if possible, and do it yourself. If you can eat outside, that'd be preferable and safer as well, but that's not always possible. So if you're sitting inside, try and think about finding a table that's not in a heavy traffic area. Eat off hours if you can, and also keep this point in mind. A close contact is defined by someone who's within six feet, but also for around 15 minutes or more. Those are the types of exposures you want to try and reduce. Now, you obviously can't eat with a mask on. Uh, I do want to remind people that this is not a foodborne illness. I can't get this virus from eating it, from breathing it in, or touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. So this should be safe and good to go. Now, if you are gonna go out to eat, it's probably best to eat with your family. You're the family unit. If you're gonna go out with people that you haven't seen in a while, have some idea. Have they been doing a good job about staying safe? Because how they've been behaving is gonna affect you. There's so much to think about now when you, when you go out to eat. You, you just have to pay attention to all these things. One thing, if you're not up to it yet, you know, you can still order food out from these places, you know, help, help the restaurant industry, but have the food delivered instead of going there yourself.
Yeah, I mean, I live in New York. I'm obviously, I'm, you know, doing takeout because uh, yeah. I don't really know how to do anything in the kitchen except make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I'm eating a lot of. But Sanjay, I mean, I, I would feel nervous going out to a restaurant at this point still. Obviously, they're not open in New York, so I don't have to make that choice. But, but wh where do you stand on that? Yeah, me too. And, and I think a lot of it's because, you know, I, I just talked about all the things that you should pay attention to. But so much is dependent on how everyone else is behaving as well. And, you know, if you're with your own family or people that you've been quarantined with in some way or staying at home with, you have an idea. But you don't know about everyone else in the restaurant. I think people are generally doing a good job, but it just takes one person who may be unwittingly, unknowingly carrying the virus to potentially start spreading it. Mm. This, uh, this is a question Paulina sent in from Mexico City, which reads, how come my whole family tested a positive mm. and I tested negative for COVID-19 for all living under the same roof? Well, why might that be, Sanjay? Well, that's interesting. So there, obviously, if you're, your whole family's tested positive and you have not, there's a good chance you're exposed, first of all. I think that's the sort of point of the question. So there's two things that come to mind. One is that there are these, these false negative tests. People get tested and it comes back as a false negative. Second thing is just because you're exposed doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become infected. And that's not to minimize this virus, but for some reason there are people, for whatever reason, something different genetically, who get exposed to the virus but combat it and the virus is never able to take hold in their body. Hmm. Dr. Wen Leah in Chicago sent in this video. Let's take a look. Our masks with exhaust valves dumping air into the environment where it could spread the virus from an asymptomatic carrier? If so, should these masks be legal? Dr. Wayne, there's certainly a lot of types of masks out there. What about the question? Yeah, so we can think about the masks that are available as in three categories. One is the N95 mask, which is the gold standard to protect the wearer, but these are in short supply and we should reserve them for healthcare workers who really need them and are exposed to a lot of virus. The second type is the type that all of us should be wearing, which is a surgical mask or a cloth mask that covers our nose and our mouth. That protects other people from us if we're asymptomatic carriers, and studies are now clear that if all of us wear masks, we reduce the rate of transmission in the community. Now, the mask that Leah is referring to is kind of the opposite of that. It's a one-way valve that protects the wearer but expels the virus into the air. And there is really no place for that during this pandemic. All right. Dr. Lena Nguyen, as always, thanks so much. Thank Great to know. see you. Just ahead, actress Taraji P. Henson joins us to discuss the mental health aspects of a disease that has disproportionately affected the African-American community, what her foundation designed to fight those stigmas is doing to help, and how what's happening in Minnesota around the killing of George Floyd is compounding, of course, the mental toll. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. This is CNN's Global Town Hall. We want to talk about some of the issues that are happening in the African-American community, which has been hit harder than any other by this virus. Let's show everyone this chart for a second. Uh, black Americans represent about 12.5% of the population, but close to a quarter of the fatalities. Non-Hispanic white Americans, meanwhile, make up about 52% of the deaths, despite being a much larger, about 60% of the population. And there's coronavirus. The physical and mental toll is exacerbated, obviously, by things like the breaking news out of Minneapolis this week. A third night of protesters demanding justice after the death of an unarmed black man at the hands of police. National Guard have been activated after what happened last night. Yeah, and we've also been learning a lot more about the four police officers who were fired for their involvement in the events that led to the death of George Floyd. Uh, the officer who was seen with his knee on Floyd's neck had 18 complaints against him. No details about those complaints, but two resulted in punishment. Another officer was part of a 2017 excessive force lawsuit that was then settled by the city. Here to talk about all this, actress Taraji P. Henson. She's also the founder of the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, which seeks to end the stigmas about mental health in the African-American community. Also, Alfie Breland Noble, a psychologist and provider for the Foundation's network, also a founder of the mental health nonprofit, the Acoma Project. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us. Taraji, um, it, it's great to have you with us. The, this virus, I mean, it, it's been especially hard on people of color, black and brown uh, people in this country, um, also people who have been on the front lines uh, and have been able to, because of the sacrifices they are making, 
they've been able to keep a lot of other people staying at home. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the deaths that we have seen, um, many of them are frontline, frontline workers who have been infected on, on the job. I'm wondering what, what made you get involved in this and, and what do you hope to do? Uh, what made me get involved is, um, well, first me recognizing my own um, battles with uh, anxiety and depression. And then when COVID um, happened, I just, my heart went out and I just knew that people were suffering and they're suffering alone in isolation. And, you know, I'm blessed. I can call my therapist. I can pay for it without thinking about it. But what about those who can't? And knowing that the my people are being disproportionately affected by it because of uh, economic status, because of uh, past traumas that we haven't even uh, addressed, because of the stigma around mental health, I had to do something. So we created a virtual fundraising campaign for free sessions for people of co color and uh, you know dis disadvantaged. Um, neighborhoods. I'm so nervous. There's so much going on right now. My brain's just, I apologize. I mean, to talk about it, to talk about the virus, but also given what has happened to, uh, to Mr. Floyd, I mean, it, it's just, yeah. it's, it's uh, just like, it won't let up, you know, it's like, I'm trying to stop a bleeding wound and it just keeps bleeding, you know, but I'm yeah. raising money to help those who can't, who feel like they're suffocating right now, who feel like they can't talk to anyone. We're giving away free sessions. We're asking for the public's help. We've helped over 1,500 people um, in need. We have over 500 culturally competent therapists and our resource guides. You can um, check us out at the Boris L. Henson Foundation.org. Or you can check us out. Oh, you can text no stigma to seven zero seven zero seven zero. We're trying to help fifteen hundred more people. Our first session is over. We're going to start our second session at the end of next week. I'm sorry. I'm Not so sorry. No, please, Alfie. I, I wonder if, with, with the onset of coronavirus, the, the foundation was then set up to specifically help Black and Brown communities get free access. But, but can you just tell us a little bit more about how that works? How, how do people access the program? What would they experience if they do? Sure, so what they should be doing is reaching out to the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, as Ms. Henson shared. You can reach out through the web, um, and there's more information on their website. And I think what happens next is, well, not I think, what happens next is you're connected with uh, providers who are culturally competent, and you are uh, provided with the opportunity to have five free sessions of mental health support virtually because we know people can't go out. And we do know, as you both have shared, that African-Americans and black Americans are being negatively, disproportionately negatively impacted uh, by not only the virus, but by the secondary mental health impacts associated with the virus. So um, it really is an incredible opportunity for people who may have never thought about right. participating right. in therapy um, to, to get help. Trasha, one of the things that, you know, that, that's so uh, destructive about this virus, not just for, for those who, who have lost their lives, but is the loss of a sense of community, a loss of yeah. being able to you know, reach out and hold the hand of your grandmother or your mom or your best friend and just talk about what's going on. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that's one of the things, it seems like you're trying to kind of help create a community online to those who feel like, you know, it's hard enough to talk about mental health issues, even in the best of times, but when you can't even do it face to face with the person you know best, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic. Yeah. It's tragic and it's traumatizing. And um, I mean, at this point, it seems like we have to save ourselves because we keep, I mean, these issues keep coming up, racism, police brutality, you know, these are traumas that have been passed down from generations since slavery. We still haven't dealt with that trauma. And here we are with these other, I, want, I can't even call them microaggressions anymore. Damn. They're not even microscopic anymore. They're huge aggressions and they're live and in our faces every day. And we're supposed to get up and smile and go on, uh, go to work with this weight on us. It's too much. And at some point, as a human, you will crack and you need someone to talk to and it's okay. And my, my hope is that we eradicate the stigma around 
uh, mental uh, mental health in the black community because we've been taught to pray it away, you know, be strong. Don't tell me to be strong. Being strong dehumanizes me. It, it takes my trauma and it, it makes it small. I'm human. I, I have a right to fear. I have a right to be scared. Um, I'm not a superhero. <laughs> you know, I, if I get shot, I bleed and I die just like the next human. So, um, the fact that we're not even looked at as humans right now is what's quite disturbing. Yeah. And, and I think what... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please. Taraji, go ahead. I think what Ms. Henson is also expressing is what we would describe uh, as happening for many of us who are African-American, black people of color, and that is this idea of vicarious trauma, right? So it's repeated. Yeah. We have incident after incident after incident after incident, and people barely have time to collect their breath from the first incident before something else happens. And I was sharing earlier today in a conversation with Ms. Henson that George Floyd, I feel like it's important to say his name, and I think about Mr. Cooper, Christian Cooper, they remind me of my brother. Right? These are people who look like the men in my family. And so to see what happens to these men and to think about women like Breonna Taylor, to, to see what's happening repeatedly, just as she shared, it is, it's, it's unconscionable. And so what we have to do is resist the urge or resist the, the transition into feeling numb. I was talking earlier today on my Instagram page about, you know, because that's where a lot of people go to get that support. It is virtual, just as you said, Anderson. And so what we want to do is make sure that we provide opportunities just as they're doing with this amazing campaign. I have to say, at, after 20 years as a disparities researcher, first at Duke, then at Georgetown, and now with the Coma Project, Ms. Henson and this foundation are doing what we, in 18 months, what we've spent our lives, our life's blood, life's work trying to do, and that is getting black people into care. And so for, the, for this current campaign, 95% of the people who have utilized the care have been happy with their care and have said that they would come back. That's tremendous for eradicating stigma. So I just commend all of us for the work, and I commend Ms. Henson and Tracy Jane, the director, for the effort that they've put into trying to make this better for all of us. I would love to see more men sign up, though. I would love to see more men. Well, Taraji, I know this is, I mean, I, I understand I've heard you speak, I think you've sp spoken about this before. Your, your dad, who served in Vietnam, um, he, he suffered in silence for, for a long time after, after coming home from, from PTSD. And I think this, this whole, you know, I, I, my brother died by, by suicide and, uh, when, when he was 23 years old. I think this whole idea of, you know, kind of breaking the stigma around mental health issues, I just think it's so important. Is so important. The more we normalize the conversation, the more people will feel at ease to talk about it. I mean, how can you take care of your body from the neck down? Your mind is such a huge part of your body and its function, and you have to care for it. You must. And I think people uh, misconstrue the meaning of strength. Mm. Strength is not raw. It's not a vibrata. You know, there's you're so much stronger in your vulnerability. And that's what I need my people to understand. It's okay to feel. You're human. It's okay. I, I would agree. One, I would agree 100%. It is okay to feel. It is okay to express those feelings. That's a yes. normal part of our developmental process. And I think just as, as, as Ms. Henson is saying, if we don't do it, those are the things that lead to, we talk about this idea of the weathering effect on African Americans and how it literally at a cellular level negatively impacts us if we're not able to deal with and work towards healing from the many traumas that we, we experience, whether it's the microaggressions, the, current, the term coined by Dr. Chester Pierce in the 70s, or whether it's these huge traumas that we're experiencing now watching what's happening. So I encourage us to do things like stop sharing the video. It's important to be informed, but once you're informed, you really have to put that down because as Ms. Henson said, we can't take care of anybody else unless we take care of ourselves first. And that is critical in reducing the stigma and eradicating the stigma around seeking help. It is okay to get help. Everybody needs help. So I just Everybody. feel like it's really important to, we can't stress that message enough. So I'm just, clearly she knows I love her and I'm 100% behind what we're all trying to do yeah. with her with yeah. the campaign. Well, uh, Traji P. Henson and, uh, and Alfred Breland Noble, thank you so much. And I, I, uh, I hope we can talk again because this, uh, this is important and it's not going away. And, uh, and thank you. We, need, we need to talk about it. Thank you.
We'll be right Thank back. Thank you so much, Anderson. We'll be right back with some final thoughts. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. I wanted to end tonight uh, where you started, Anderson, with a number. It's still hard to believe that 100,000 people have died in the United States of a disease none of us had even heard of just a few months ago. And now one in seven Americans knows someone who has died of this. I know people who have died of this disease, some very close to me. Others, patients being cared for in our own hospitals, all dying alone because of the brutal contagiousness of this disease. Some of their families are watching tonight, suffering and wondering if it had to happen, if it was inevitable. As a doctor, I can tell you there is no more painful conversation than this one. Because truth is, many of these sad deaths could have been prevented. Yes, the virus is awful, but this was not inevitable. In countries around the world, countries afflicted with the disease at the same time we were, measure their death count in the hundreds, certainly not the thousands, and definitely not the hundreds of thousands. As I said earlier, those countries didn't have a magic therapeutic or a vaccine. They had the same things we had. They just took it seriously, acted quickly, and had exponentially more success than we did. It's a tough comparison, I know, but I think it's a fair one. Even the greatest country on earth can learn at a time like this from other countries. And I think that's more important now than ever. This is a once in a century illness and we don't know exactly why the world was stricken with this illness at this time in our collective history, but that doesn't mean we can't act. We must act. It's the best way to honor the memory of the more than 100,000 lives lost. You can also head to our website to see where families all over the world are sharing memories now of their loved ones they have lost. And if you have someone you'd like to honor, Submit their story at CNN.com slash COVID victims. Sanjay, thanks very much. I want to remind everyone about CNN's other town hall. Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, the Sesame Street crews teaming up again with CNN for the ABCs of COVID-19. It's a new town hall for kids and parents. It's Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern here on CNN. Before we go, I just want to thank everybody who joined us. Uh, Taraji P. Henson, Alfie Breland Noble, Maria Van Kerkhove, and David Quammen. Also want to thank all of you who wrote in with your questions. If you didn't get your question answered tonight, the conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. The news continues. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.